Mutabura says, how many days did it take you start to finish? I'm about to do my Robalo R23.5, which is, has a very dodgy transom. So we're talking about replacing a transom and how long it's going to take. And obviously this is going to vary a lot depending on the boat and how you're doing the transom. Is there an outboard on it? Is there an inboard in it? Is there a transom bracket on there? Is it a Euro style transom? Is it an inboard? So there's a lot of different variables here as far as how long it's going to take you to do the transom. But just for simplicity's sake, let's talk about it like it's just a straight up engine mounted to the back of the transom and you're gonna do the transom from the outside. There's two different ways to do transoms. One, you do it from the inside where you gotta cut out part of the floor, depending on the access, cut out part of the floor and cut out the inside shell and do it from the inside so you don't mess with the outside fiberglass of the hull. Or the second way, depending on the boat, is you cut it out from the outside and you cut it around, leave a lip there, and then do the transom from the outside, not having to mess with the inside. So on a lot of center consoles, that's generally how you're going to do it is from the outside. On other boats, depending on the transom, you're going to do it from the inside. So if you got one outboard mounted to the back of the boat, you're generally going to take one full day just to get that engine off of the back of the boat get all the things de-rigged. So you're going to have like through haul fittings. You're going to have the drain plug. You're going to have your deck drains. You're going to have the engine mounted on there, possibly have trim tabs on there that you got to pull off uh, a ladder that's going to need to come off. You're, you're going to have to pull the rub rail off of it. You've got to get the hen number off of there. You're going to have to, let's see what else do a lot of them tra uh, transducers might be mounted on there. Um, could be a jack plate. So depending on what all's there is going to depend, does it take you a full day to completely de-rig, get all that stuff off of the transom? Or does it take you only like two hours? Because if it only takes you like two hours to get the engine off, get trim tabs off and get whatever else is on there off, then you might be able to cut the outside shell and dig the transom out. So you got one full day basically on de-rig and, and de demolition. Then the next day you can come in clean everything up and then get all your stuff cut, get your, your coring cut, get your um, fiberglass cut and ready. And then on the third day, you can come in, put the coring in, fiberglass it, get all that stuff done. And that's now you're on day four. So then the fifth day, you're going to ferret and then hopefully lay some gel coat or paint, whatever you're doing with it. And then you're going to need a whole nother day to re-rig it. Generally, it's going to be about six days. Now, if you have a bracket on the um, transom and you've got a lot more stuff, then go ahead and add another day. So you got about seven days. And then if you have, let's say, um, there's a live well or something like that on the transom, that could be a whole nother deal that you've got to mess with. So I would say, depending on how bad it is and what your access is, you're going to be anywhere from six to 10 days to be able to completely demolish the back of the, you know, derig everything, demo everything, clean it all up, get it all glass, put back together, painted, buffed, and then put back together. That's going to be pretty close in there. Um, you know, a lot of people, some people can do it within a week, depending on how much work you're putting in there. But you, you're always going to have like some downtime when you're doing glass and stuff like that because there's always dry time. You've got like, you know, 
the first couple days are going to be like long days and you put a lot of work in and then like the third fourth day when you start actually fiberglassing it actually kind of gets a little bit less because you you know lay on your first layer of glass that might only take you you know an hour or so then you got to wait for that to tack up so then you wait a couple hours put on the next layer wait a couple hours put on the next layer and then you know finish it with one last thing so it's kind of like the process gets kind of spread out depending on, you know, what exactly you're doing and towards you, when you get towards the end. And then obviously when you paint it or gel coat it, you've got to wait for that to dry before you derig. So the days, as far as like time-wise, it's going to be 6 to 10. But as many as far as like actual days, I would say same thing, 6 to 10. And it might go a little bit more depending on are you doing it yourself? How much time do you have per day to do it? I mean, you know, if you've only got a couple hours in the day, then it might take you a couple weeks to do it because you come home from work, you're trying to demolition and get everything cut out. You might not get everything done in one day, two days, three days like you'd like to. So that's about how long it's going to take for your average transom. Now, if you've got even more stuff that you got to do, like if you got to get on the inside and mess with the floor, and mess with non-skid and, and other stuff like that, it could, you know, you're going to have to add days based on what exactly you have to do and if you're doing it from the inside. If you've got a an inboard, that's a whole other thing because now you've got to pull that inboard out of the boat as well because generally you want to do those from the inside, not necessarily from the outside. So that's kind of, um, you know, the things that I can think about as far as how long it's going to take to do a transom and exactly, you know, the main components of the processes. Christopher Williams, I have plenty of triple guard grease I use from my old job. I don't use anymore. I'll give you some. Can I send you some? 100%. I'll take all the triple guard grease you got. Uh, send me any of that stuff. If you want to send me any, any greases, tools, any of that stuff, send it to me. 100%. I will take that all day, every day. Thank you, Christopher. Douglas, Suzuki has a timing chain, not a belt like the rest. Suzuki much better. Um, well, yeah, Suzuki does have a timing chain, but I mean, Mercury has a timing chain. I believe that Honda also has a timing chain. I think Yamaha is the only one that is still running a timing belt. And from what I can see from um, going forward, I think that they're going to stick with the timing belt because the new 4.3 liter 350 has a timing belt on it. So I don't know, you know, whether or not that's really matters. It's just a, it'll be, it's a maintenance item, whereas a chain's not a maintenance item. Um, you know, the downfall to having a belt is that it could break. And especially with Yamaha, all their engines for the most part are interference engines. And all that means is that the engine itself, the actual powerhead, you've got valves that open up and you got pistons that come up. So as the piston comes up and the valve opens, if it goes up and down like this, if it hits that, they call that an interference motor whereas if it is you know a lot of the other ones there they aren't interference engines and so if the piston comes up there's no ability for it to hit that valve which is the big thing when it comes to the timing of it i don't think they've had any problems with it in my opinion in my experience working on thousands of yamahas they I mean, I don't think there's a problem with having the timing belt and that the belt or the chain, either one is better. You know, the timing chain, yeah, it's maintenance-free, but pretty much all the engines that they make now are maintenance-free as far as the 
you know, the valves and the shimming and any of that stuff, the powerheads themselves are pretty much maintenance free. So I guess, yeah, Yamaha having a maintenance timing belt and have to change that timing belt every, I think, thousand hours, depending on the model. They used to say every thousand or every 10 years, but I think that has changed. And now it's just every thousand hours. It doesn't matter the age on the belt anymore, but whether one's better than the other, I don't, I don't know about that. Suzuki makes a phenomenal product, so, you know, there is that. Maliko de Souza, you'd have to run a bunch of numbers. Each user will be different. We brought we bought a heat pump for home for our home. I ran the numbers after a few months. The savings in natural gas versus electricity was negligible. It would take us decades to recoup the cost and the pump has only a 10 to 20 year lifespan. He's comparing this to the Shero props and you know, whether or not it's worth spending the money to get the propellers or not. But again, you'd have to run the numbers and whether or not you're going to burn enough fuel and have enough fuel economy savings to justify the price of the propeller. But it is a good observation with talking about this pump where things wear out. And so, yeah, if you spend money on something and you're supposed to be saving money, like, you know, if you buy um, a lithium battery, if you buy a brushless trolling motor, if you buy a solar panel, stuff like that, you're buying something and you're spending more money based on the fact that you are, are on the assumption that you're going to either save money, it's going to last longer, or it's going to perform better. It's kind of a good thing to be thinking about and looking at. Like if you don't use your boat enough to where you know, buying, let's say the trolling motor, buying a brushless trolling motor versus a brushed trolling motor. The price for the brushless is going to be a lot more. But if you only use your boat, say, you know, 10 times a year, and you only use the trolling motor maybe three times out of that year, the price isn't probably going to matter because by the time you wear out the brushed trolling motor, it's you're going to have so many years of use out of it that it's not going to matter to you. Same thing with the lithium batteries and the lead acid batteries. So if you're using your boat all the time and you, you know, put a lot of wear and tear on it, meaning that you, the more you use it, the more you're going to beat up the battery, the sooner they're going to die. So maybe investing in lithium is a better option for you because you're going to get more years of use out of it opposed to buying more lead acid batteries in a shorter period of time because of the amount of use that you use it. Like, you know, if you're using your boat every day, you're starting your engines multiple times a day, then you're going to wear out a lead acid battery in two to four years. Whereas you might get 10, 15 years out of a lithium. So, you know, you might be able to save money there. Whereas someone else that might not justify the price to get something like that, because by the time they wear out, with the normal thing, like his example being the pump, it's it's negligible. And, you know, did you really save any money? Did you really get a benefit out of buying that product or not? It's just something to think about and a way to look at things. Chrisum 2042, I've owned both. My last two engines have been Yamaha 250 SHO and a Yamaha 300 on a 22-foot and a 24-foot bay boat. Really like both. My Yamahas have run perfect, so did my previous Suzuki. 
that I ran hard for 12 years. Don't know about now, but previously, if a person purchased during a promotion, the Suzuki came with six-year warranty. My 2019 and 2022 Yamahas came with a five-year warranty. Think it's typically three years without promotion. My experience, Suzuki is quieter and more fuel-efficient. Yamaha has larger dealer network and easier to find certified Yamaha service. Both are extremely reliable engines. I really like my Yamaha engine. That being said, if I decided to to change to a different bay boat manufacturer with Suzuki 300 or 350, I wouldn't hesitate on the Suzuki if I liked the boat. I'm with you 100%. I think Suzuki's are super reliable and um, quieter. Yeah, honestly, Yamaha is probably the loudest engine out there. Uh, Mercury is probably the quietest outboard out there as far as like, you know, quiet and loud goes. Honda's probably somewhere in the middle. I think that they're Pretty, pretty quiet. So they're probably neck and neck with Suzuki. Suzuki, super quiet, super reliable. You got 12 years out of yours. I I would be in the same thing that I wouldn't not buy a boat because it has a Suzuki or a Yamaha. I think they're both reliable engines, both really good. I think Yamaha does have six-year warranty now. This is 2024. I don't know. You know, back then, yeah, you got five years. Generally, you every manufacturer generally gives you three years of warranty, and then you can purchase whatever you want. You can purchase, you know, Yamaha's YES for extended warranty, and I think you can buy up to three. There for a time, you were able to buy like five years extra. Same thing for Mercury. They come with three-year factory standard warranty, and then you can buy you know, one, two, three, whatever years you want. Mercury is a little bit different because they have different levels. Like you got a platinum and a gold and, you know, that could get kind of, uh, depending on what you're doing, that might be something to think about. I don't know. It's hard to explain. You know, if you have platinum, pretty much everything's covered. If you have gold, very minimal stuff is covered. So I generally tell people to buy platinum if you're going with Mercury. Captain Pepin, the 300 AP Suzuki is equally reliable as the Yamaha. Yes, equally, both are spectacular engines. Suzuki is quieter, used to be substantially less expensive, but still less expensive. I can't find anyone with over five years and 500 hours on an AP 300 that can say anything bad about them. But all outboards are overpriced. I think they are up there, up more than 35% in the past few years, and the yen has actually softened the U.S. dollar. So everything you got right there, I'm I'm with you 100%. Suzuki being just as reliable as Yamaha, yep, I agree. The 300 AP probably is a little bit underrated than it really should be. I think you're right. It doesn't get as enough credit as it really should. I still think that the Suzuki 140s don't get enough credit as they should either. I mean, those are super reliable and they last a whole a long long time them being cheaper yep they have always been cheaper and that's kind of the image that suzuki has right now in the market because they have been selling everything so much cheaper than everybody else you know you go buy a um it used to be almost twelve to fifteen thousand dollars less than a yamaha or mercury depending on what you're buying like a set of twins or something like that or if 300 350 but um Suzuki, again, quieter, yeah. Mercury, probably quietest. Yamaha's probably the loudest, but um, again, super reliable. Shred Flintstone, quick question. I'm no expert, expert, 
but it seems to me that crossing the lines at the stern of the boat could potentially damage the engine or propeller, or the prop could straight up cut through the rope. Am I wrong? If so, can someone please explain why? So we're talking about, you know, how you tie up a boat. Generally, when you tie up a boat in a slip, if you've got a tide swing that you've got to deal with, like anywhere near the ocean, even a lot of they even some lakes have a tide swing. So as the tide goes up and down, you need that boat to be able to go up and down with it. Because if you don't, then you could have the boat get caught on a rope and tip over and sink. It could get caught under a dock and sink. It could get, you know, hung up in the air and rip cleats out of the boat. Um, multiple bad things can happen if you don't tie up your boat properly. Generally, when you tie it up in a slip, you want long lines. So you want a line from the front all the way to the back and from the back all the way to the front. And then in the back, generally, most people tie them up with a crisscross so that way you can get that long line. So if you've got a line from like this, if this is your boat, you want a line from this corner going to this corner and from this corner going to this corner. So they cross over each other. Yeah, they do um, get on the engines. They do get around the propellers. But generally, when you think about it, the line is not like, you know, taut all the time it's mainly like it's just there and the boat's going up and down and the boat's you know floating around in the wind and kind of moving around so it never really like you know has this position where it's going like a propeller is going to cut the line and cut through it i guess over yeah a long long time like if you're using the same lines for 10 years you know over that period of time the prop might be able to cut it and then also the the water it floating it moves around it's not enough pressure the line will give so you're not going to mess up the propeller by like bending it or anything like that worst case scenario if you leave your boat in all the time and you have to go through a lot of storms and stuff like that it might the line might rub a little mark on the chap on the side like the back of the drive shaft housing or something like that other than that just the way that it's floating and the boat will push down, come up, it'll move around. The lines just kind of find their way to where it doesn't. And again, the boat's floating around. So having them crossed and long allows the boat to, you know, move a little bit this way. And then as soon as this line gets tight, it pulls back. And then the boat floats back this way. And it just kind of like floats back and forth in between those lines. And it's like, you know, suspended there based on, the tension, but it's not enough tension to where the lines can't move around with the boat as it goes up and down. So hopefully that kind of answers that question. Solo burrito. I don't see how you can call it a hoax, maybe marketing, but the performance of a lithium battery vastly outmatches lead for sure. Sure, there are some downsides, and it doesn't fit every application. For a 36-volt trolling motor, you definitely want lithium. 100%. So being a hoax, I'm just saying that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that think it is a hoax. So when, when a lot of people that take somebody that has never been in boating at all, someone that works as in an office, administrative, they don't do outside stuff. They're not a mechanic. They're not, you know, a DIY person. They're not, you know, they don't have to deal with mechanical stuff like that. They're coming from an outside perspective in they look at a battery and they don't know the chemical makeups of a battery. There's so many people that don't. And so they look at it and they go, oh, this battery is $1,000. This battery is $200. And obviously to them, not knowing anything about it, they're like, you know, 
this is a hoax. There's no point. Why would I spend a thousand dollars for this when this one's 200? That's kind of the angle there is to try and get those people that don't know anything about it and to be able to reach them with something that can educate them and help them to kind of understand where things are going and show people the technology that's out there and that it is safe that, um, yeah, they do, it does have its downsides and it is going to be continuing to change, but for sure, lithium trolling motors, I mean, by and large, any trolling motor should be on a lithium battery because you have that constant power. You have, you know, power all the way down to the end and your battery's going to last a lot longer. So on a lead acid battery that might get maybe a thousand cycles tops for a $500 lead acid battery for a thousand dollar lithium, you're going to get 6,000 cycles out of the battery. So it's like, why not have a battery? You spend $500 more, but you have a battery that lasts five times as long. And you can use that battery all the way down to like 20%. Most of the BMSs will, um, you know, start to tell you, give you warnings and like, they don't let you generally take it all the way down to 0%, but, um, hundred percent it's lithium, the performance aspects of it vastly outweighs those of a lead acid battery, depending on the application, anything for a deep cycle house or stuff like that. The bigger thing is that people want to use them as starting batteries. And I think you're going to see them being used more for starting batteries, hundred percent. Um, and you know, we just saw Yamaha. This is probably by the time this video comes out, it's probably going to be a few weeks ago that Yamaha bought Torquedo Brunswick being Mercury bought rely on years ago. So now you have the top two, you know, brand manufacturers of outboards in the electrical space. So, I mean, lithium's coming for starting batteries, whether people want it or not, it's just going to be that way. Lead acid's not going away but you're going to see lithium a lot more because it is more versatile. We talked about it, I think, last week where we talked about solid states, sodium, and all these other chemical makeups. So the change in the market and the change in the industry is coming, and it's going to be awesome. Things are going to last a lot longer. Hopefully the price will come down, but like you said, the um, performance aspects of it do vastly outweigh it. Sea shoes. I love my lithiums. I run an AGM for starting electronics, but my trolling motor is, is on lithiums. I can run days on them before charging. Some of the lakes I fish are electric only, and I could put a putt around on the trolling motor all day long without an issue. By switching to lithiums, I dropped something like 70 pounds out of my boat, which is huge. The boat handles and performs that boat handles better now and picked up speed. So there you go. Just like what we're talking about, the lithiums, the advantages are there. Like, you, you know, generally you can't go all day and even that days without charging the, the deep cycle batteries just because of the state of charge of the lead acid. So you might be able to run one full day on your trolling motor with your deep cycle lead acids. But after the state of charge of those batteries get drawn down to like 50%, the next day when you go out, you're going to drain those batteries quick. And it's you're not going to get the same performance. Whereas the lithium, even at 75, 50%, you're still getting the same amount of power output that you were when it was at a hundred percent. So definitely all of the advantages there. Mudabura again, only issue I have with lithium is that the, if the BMS has a fault, your battery doesn't work. LTO 
batteries are worth looking at if you DIY, no BMS, and can run off an alternator. So LTOs are lithium titanium oxide. I don't really know a lot about LTOs. I don't know if that's true or not, whether you can run them off an alternator and no BMS. Again, I don't know that much about them. I know a little bit about lithium. I know a little bit about sodium. I know a little bit about all this stuff, but I don't know everything about it. So that's something that I need to look into being the lithium titanium oxide batteries. Um, yeah, if you don't have to use a BMS, that's very interesting. I would like to know what the cycle count is. And then also whatever they call that, where the one side will eat over to the other one. That like that thing where they're talking about like plating. So like whenever they... Lithium, the anode and the cathode, the one makes its way over to the other one and it starts to build up deposits and then it can actually short out the battery. And then also it just breaks down and doesn't have the same power. I think they call that plating. I'm not 100% sure, but I would like to know about that with the LTOs. Um, but yeah, that's the biggest thing with the BMS is like we said last week with Yamaha and a lot of the engine manufacturers, they don't like lithium because cheap lithiums have a bad BMS or the BMS is just cheap and it will actually disconnect from the engine. So that way, if you're running along and the BMS just straight up disconnects itself from the engine, that's going to cause major issues with the engine. It could burn up the computer. It could burn up uh, other parts of it. It could actually just, you know, cause the alternator, the stator to burn up. That's one of the bads and downsides to it is the BMS. Is it a good BMS? Is it a cheap BMS? And you know, that whole deal. But I think most of the good lithium battery companies out there have all figured all that out. I mean, you know, Epic, Abyss, Stealth, like they really have, they got it locked down as far as, you know, figuring out and solving those problems where they don't, they don't have those problems anymore like they used to. So again, the technology is advancing and a lot of those problems are slowly going away. Again, I don't know much about LTO, but now that's something for everybody to go look up. Richard Lovis, 16 foot flats boat, 90 horse Yamaha had a three blade, 17 pitch prop was bouncing off the rev limiter, went to, to three blade, 21 pitch and top end good, but lost the whole shot. It is vented with quarter-inch vent holes. Would it help to open the vent holes? Also, is porpoising hard once I started trimming out? I also am running a jack plate. So, a couple different things here. The porpoising fact and the, you know, trimming out, that's going to have to do with weight and um, engine location. So, that has nothing to do with your whole, your whole shot prop pitch, all this other stuff that's going on. Whenever you start porpoising, it's because the weight distribution of the boat, how high the engine is, how far back it is, and um, the angle of the lower unit. So you've got a whole nother thing going on there with the porpoising and the um, the jack plate and the, and the trimming, all that, you know, that's, that's a whole nother subject all in of itself. I would look at the engine mounting height and whether or not you've got that jack plate is the engine buried is it not buried? Because most you could have the engine buried and that little bit of trim, water going over the anti-ventilation plate, and that's sucking it down, which is giving you that porpoising factor. You know, the weight distribution, the engine, you know, maybe it's too light up in the front because you got a jack plate. It pushes the engine back, and the whole weight of the boat is it's not centered the way you want it to be centered. So that's a separate issue. Now, as far as the propeller, 
going from a, so we got a three blade, 17 pitch prop. And we went to that had a three blade, 17 pitch prop had a good hole shot, but it was bouncing off the rev limiter. Went to the three blade, 21 pitch and the top end is still good, but the hole shot went away and you want to vent it. So the vents isn't going to help your hole shot. The vents basically just let exhaust gas out and it gives you slip uh, on the prop. You're going to add slip to it. So it will let you rev up a little bit more, might give you a little bit more top speed because it, it releases drag, but slip does not mean grip. When you are talking about a hole shot and getting up on plane, you need grip, which means, you know, whether that's a bigger prop, a four blade prop, you know, less pitch, but those are going to be the variables there as far as being able to get a better hole shot. Most likely the three blade 17 pitch prop might have been a little bit bigger than the three blade 21 pitch. And that's why you got a better hole shot because it's less of a pitch and it's bigger in diameter, which gave you more grip, which gave you a better hole shot. Now the three blade 21 might be a little bit smaller. So therefore you've got, you know, you've got a bigger pitch, which brings your RPM down and you've got a smaller prop, which loses your grip and your hole shot, but yet it's able to keep your top end speed the same. That's kind of what I think might be going on. Not hundred percent based on the details that I have, but that's what you need to be thinking about is diameter of the prop and the, um, the pitch, which is going to go going to affect the grip that you get on the water. If you take those vents out, it's going to add slip. You might gain your top end speed. You might hit the rev limiter now, uh, but you're probably going to lose your um, hole shot even worse than it already is. Hopefully that kind of helps. I know it's kind of um, difficult to go off of what you've said here, but we'll do one more for this week. We got Frank Coffee. New types of batteries are coming to market every year now. There is already one car for sale in China that uses sodium batteries. We talked about this last week, you know, the the whole lithium, sodium, all this stuff coming out, 100% sodium. There are some downsides to sodium from what I understand. Yes, it is readily available. It is going to be cheaper. But I want to say that sodium doesn't get the same cycle count out of it. And then one other thing, I think the sodium has trouble where it goes back to that plating issue or whatever they call it, where, you know, the anode and the cathode, it... It eats, it, it has deposits that leaves as it goes through and it, you know, it just, it wears out quicker and sodium doesn't have the same capacity. I want to say sodium, like, you know, if you've get so much energy or power or density, energy density, I think is what they call it. Like you get X, let's say, let's, let's say you get this much density out of a nickel manganese cobalt and you get this much out of an LFP. I want to say that you get like this much out of a sodium. So the capacity is a lot less, which means less range. I'm not hundred percent on that being the only problem. I'm sure there's some political stuff that goes into this too with, you know, sodium being so readily available, but um, I don't know all the ins and outs of all these chemical makeups, where they source the products and all that, but 100%, that is definitely on the market. We've been talking a lot about batteries lately. Let me do one more since I was just another battery comment. The Diplomasta. 
2005 DFI 150 here. It appears that these air and fuel injectors don't have any screens in them. When looking at the microfish, is that true or are they simply not shown? By and large, pretty much all, you know, electronic fuel injection engines on the injectors have like a filter or a screen built into the injector. So on the back of it, there is going to be some kind of filtration element to it. Usually they're not going to be on a diagram, microfish, whatever you want to call it, because it's not technically a serviceable item. It comes in the injector. It's like built into the injector. Some injectors, you can get it out. Some, you know, for the most part, you just take the injector out and you can spray it out and clean out from the back. So, yeah, my guess is that they do have them. There might be some air injectors that don't have filled screens on the back, but by and large, I would say 90, 95% of injectors have a screen or a filter or something on the back of it to catch debris and make sure nothing gets into that filter. So that's why you don't see it on a diagram because it's not really a serviceable item. It is just built into the injector. It's part of the injector, and that's just kind of what it is. So anything you guys want to talk about, we appreciate all the topics. We thank you for all the comments and everything like that. If you want to talk about something, comment below. Email us at askbab at bornagainboating.com. Check out our boaters program at bornagainboating.com. That helps. Um you know, fund this whole operation and keep these videos coming. Other than that, we will look forward to seeing you next week.